Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Silcox. In this week's edition of Insight, we're going back to the future just to go back again. Yes, we've gone full 80s as Optus forces to replace the email with the fax, the mobile phone for the rotary dial phone, and the lunchtime barn me for salmon volivants. Last week's Optus outage has caused more consequences for the industry than a Transformers Decepticon plot. Lamal's never-ending story, oh, 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 is a fitting soundtrack to the broker code and commissions disclosure that may have finally run its course. And if you concentrate over the top of multiple pairs of leg warmers rubbing together in another scene from fame, you can hear the ear-piercing sound of a war games style dial-up moding announcing more cybersecurity advice from ASIC. Hello, everyone. This week, I'm joined by Deputy Editor Wendy Wanderyears-Pew, Editor John Moonwalk-Deeks, and Chairman Terry Cabbage-Patch-McMullen. Welcome, Terry. Good morning, Andrew. What do you remember about the 80s? Oh, way too much, way too much. I was I was working extremely hard for BHP in the 80s, so, <laughs> so I was actually a, a fairly solid citizen in those days. Good morning, Wendy. Good morning, Andrew. Were you a never-ending story fan? No, no, I wasn't at all, actually. <laughs> what about Labyrinth? Was that more your style? I, I can't actually remember what, what I was watching. Oh, I asked the wrong question. Clearly, you had a different 80s experience to... Uh, it's Terry. Neither of those. <laughs> and hello, John. Hello. Listeners will have to believe me, but you're a dead ringer for He-Man. <laughs> I don't think don't think I've got the same blonde hair or, or muscles, but thanks anyway. <laughs> well, by the power of Grayskull, John, you've been writing the never-ending news story on the broker code and commissions disclosure. Has it reached the final chapter? Not quite, uh, but I think we're getting there. It has been a bit of an epic, hasn't it? But uh, people keep expressing strong opinions so we keep reporting them we have discussed this saga a few times now on the podcast and our analysis this week includes a handy timeline to help try and make sense of it all uh, but a brief summary neba's 2022 broker code in section 6.1 uh, it originally said remuneration including commissions had to be disclosed to retail customers but the requirement was later extended to include small businesses some brokers weren't happy with that. And last month, after further consultation, 6.1 reverted back to how it was before, which means that brokers only need to disclose commissions to retail clients as defined by the Corporations Act, which effectively means clients buying a retail product. Why are we still writing about this? Well, at Steadfast AGM this month, Robert Kelly, the CEO, was asked what he thought about the latest changes to the code, and he had an interesting answer. He said Steadfast was a forerunner for transparency and that it has its own code, which champions full disclosure to all retail and small business clients. In discussions with Insurance News, he went further and said that those arguing against transparency are worried about their clients finding out how much they earn. He gave the example of BizPack buyers who, in his view, are retail clients who should be told exactly how much commission their broker is making. He said the previous version of the NEBA code was the correct one from the consumer perspective, and some NEBA members had threatened to leave the association if it didn't revert back to the current wording. After we reported those comments, we had an almost immediate reaction from broken groups PSC and AUB, who had a different interpretation. They said that they did argue against the previous version of the code, but it wasn't because they were afraid of transparency. It all came down to the practicalities and how you define small business. 
which would have meant them collecting and monitoring data on client employee numbers, which is something they don't do at the moment. And it would be costly and all of that cost would be passed on to the client for very little benefit. Both PSC and AUB agree that unsophisticated smaller business clients should get full disclosure, but they don't think it's vital that this is embedded in the code. Many brokers disclose voluntarily, uh, they say, and all their brokers disclose remuneration when they're asked to. You'll remember Code Compliance Committee Chairman Oscar Schub's comments that disclosure should not be discretionary. But AUB's Mike Emmett says Mr. Schub and the committee should stick to focusing on compliance and stop commenting on the actual wording of the code. I did ask Mr. Emmett whether to avoid the issue over tracking client employee numbers, all commissions could be declared. But he said that isn't a good idea. It could lead to a race to the bottom, he said, where brokers can easily poach clients by offering cut price deals. And that could lead to the good brokers leaving the industry to main, maintain their income. PSC and AUB said discussions were held about the future of NEBA, but they say this was about a much broader range of issues, which they go into some detail about. That's probably as much as I can fit in for now, but there's much more in the analysis article. So if you're interested to know exactly what was said and by whom, grab a cup of tea and settle in for a long read. Well, ASIC don't seem to care anymore. Why is this so hard to draw a line under it, Terry? Because it's something that just won't go away. Look, I've, I first started writing about the commission disclosure debate in the 1990s, so I'm very familiar with all the pros and cons, but I, I can't say that the arguments have, have changed all that much. And there are definitely some some very you know real considerations for brokers, but this issue has been around forever. I compare it with my financial advisor uh, who discloses his charges up front by law. So does my mechanic, my GP, my accountant. None of those guys are cheap, but I just don't believe that these things need to be kept from clients. I really do think that clients are a lot more flexible and accepting of business realities than than we may think. And I think in a, in a period of very high premiums and therefore very high commissions, there, there is the risk of reputational damage if this sort of thing became something that something like the Murdoch newspapers focused on. So in answer to your question, we, we really can't draw a line under this issue until commission disclosure really gets into line with uh, standard business practice now. Well, Optus customers were thrown back to the 1980s last Wednesday morning, Wendy, when they were left out without internet and mobile phone services. But can affected business claim on their insurance? Well, it looks pretty unlikely in most cases because a lot of policies have a um, a time threshold. So there would have to be a, a disruption lasting, you know, 48 hours or, or longer um, in a lot of cases. Then common wordings require physical damage at the policyholders' premises, uh, which isn't the case here. Then there are extensions for utilities outages, but they're and the wording may only apply to electricity, gas and water and, and not telecommunications. So there's, you know, there's a lot of barriers in the way of claiming, really. So And this doesn't look like uh, it was a cyber attack, so there'd be no cover uh, in that regard. So um, generally speaking, it doesn't look like insurance is going to help, help out businesses much here. If it's unlikely that current insurance products respond, Terry, does this mean there's a potential gap in the market? Possibly. For an insurer or entrepreneurial underwriting agency looking for a 
a high cost but low frequency risk. I, I guess this thing could fit, but would you really pay a premium for cover on something that's really incredibly rare, like, you know, crocodile bites and all the other things you can get, like being hit by a meteorite? So, yeah, I think it would be a fairly difficult product to uh, to sell. Well, I'll actually check if my crocodile attack insurance's uh, renewals come through. The last time Optus made massive headlines, it was due to a cyber attack, Wendy. And now another Australian business has been hit. Yes, ports operator DP World uh, had some of its um, uh, systems affected by a, a cyber attack on on Friday, uh, which halted freight movement at its terminal. So it handles 40% of goods flowing in and out of the country. And the incident um, affected ports at Melbourne, Fremantle, Sydney and Brisbane. So it's got things moving again now, but it says its uh, investigation and remediation work is likely to continue for some time. And it's working closely with the government and the Australian Cybersecurity Centre, the Federal Police and other bodies as they're continuing to to look into what happened. Well, ASIC also had some advice on cybersecurity this week, John. That's right. It, it put out a release this week to say that a report from the corporate regulators found significant gaps in safeguards in Australian businesses for, for cybersecurity. So it's saying that 33% of respondents to a survey that it did do not have a cyber incident response plan, while 58% admit having limited to no capability to protect confidential information appropriately. So the chairman, Joe Longo, says that all organisations must make cyber security and cyber resilience a top priority It was alarming that 44% of participants are not managing third-party or supply chain risks, he said, and third-party relationships provide threat actors with with easy access to an organization's systems and networks. There are encouraging signs, ASIC notes, with some organizations reporting mature developments in identity and access management, governance and risk management. Mr. Longo says that corporations' cyber plans need to go beyond security alone and build up resilience to help respond to and recover from cyber incidents. Uh, All this will will be encouraged by the insurers, of course, because they want businesses to have very strong cybersecurity systems in place so that the chances of having to claim on the cyber insurance coverage are reduced. Well, Wendy, IAG is the latest insurer to join the federal government's cyclone reinsurance pool. Yes, well, all large insurers have to join the pool by the end of this year, with smaller ones having a further 12 months. Uh, so IAG is the, the latest to come on board. So it says we'll be passing savings from that to policyholders, but obviously everyone's situation is going to depend on their circumstances. So the pool was launched officially in the middle of last year, but it, it's taken time for insurers to sort out things with their other reinsurance arrangements and to get their systems organised. Uh, so IG's now done that um, uh, and um, it's ready to go with the pool. But it continues to stress that uh, mitigation remains the most important element of reducing risk. Not a bad idea to dive into the pool as the cyclone season gets underway, John. Yes, that's right. As, uh, as far as I can tell, it, it has to be an advantage to be part of the pool. As Wendy said, large insurers have to join by the end of this year anyway. But with the pool paying every cent of every cyclone claim, you'd be pretty upset if you'd left it to the very last minute and missed being covered for an early cyclone. 
it should benefit IAG customers too, because buying reinsurance through the scheme should be cheaper than buying it on the private market. But as we said before, we won't know for a while just how much of a saving insurers will be able to pass on. Historically, companies like IAG argued against government reinsurance pools like this one, but now it's here. It makes sense for insurers to join up as soon as they can. Well, finally, Wendy, we're learning to live with e-scooters, but a lawyer's group is worried that insurance is getting left behind. Yeah, the Australian Lawyers Alliance wants a detailed review of e-scooter insurance and regulation options. It says at the moment um, insurance coverage is an inconsistent patchwork uh, and injuries caused by e-scooters can leave people unable to recover damages and the ride of the scooter can be exposed to uh, significant compensation claims. So it says a system should be developed so people who hire or own the scooters have the right type of cover wherever they are in Australia. All right, listeners, kick back, relax, and listen to the dulcet tones. Terry, should e-scooters be allowed at all if people aren't properly covered for collisions? Well, electric scooters are silent and deadly in the wrong hands, and the number of 10-year-olds racing around the nation's streets and walkways at really quite frightening speed really is something we have to think about. And it's going to be even worse after Christmas because an electric scooter would make a, a great Christmas present for a a young teen or even under. But parents should consider that these devices are, in the present situation, you know, they're uninsurable. At least get him a helmet so he's protected when he runs over a pram or a pensioner. And really, if you, you want to get him something that, that does have an element of danger in him, I really don't think a, a nine millimeter Glock for Christmas would be any more dangerous. But it's really up to the insurance industry to make rules or laws or train people to how to actually be safe. And the real risk is considerable because there's there's no training, no license required, and no one will do anything about regulating riders' behaviour until the death rate becomes more significant. That's a sad but true fact. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, Wendy Pugh, John Deeks, and Terry McMullen. Enjoy your week, and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.